Okay, good evening everyone, and on behalf of the LSE Space for Thought Literary Festival 2016, LSE's Africa Talks and the blog Africa in Words, I'm really delighted to welcome you to this event this evening, Imagining African Futures. This is um, part of LSE's 8th Space for Thought Literary Festival, which is taking place all this week from Monday the 22nd to Saturday the 27th of February, with the theme of Utopias this year. Um, to introduce myself, my name is Rebecca Jones. I'm a research fellow at the University of Birmingham, where I work on Nigerian literature and culture. Um, I'm also the managing editor of AfricaInWords.com, which is a blog that focuses on cultural production and Africa. Um, I'm really delighted to have been invited to chair this event tonight on behalf of Africa in Words. Um, we're also extremely privileged tonight to have this rather stellar lineup of three very exciting authors who are going to talk to us tonight about writing, their novels, and their ideas about African and maybe other futures. So please give a round of applause now to welcome our writers, Leia Denley, Jennifer McCumby, and Chibundu Anuzo. Um, so the plan for tonight is we're going to start um, in a moment with each writer giving us a reading from their novel. Um, and then we're going to get a bit discussion going more broadly about the theme of futures, but also other, anything else that emerges from the novels. Um, thanks to the generosity of these authors' publishers, we were able to create some reading groups for students at the LSE who, were, who read the novel, novels and came up with some questions for the authors that I'm going to try and feed into the discussion. And then, of course, we're going to open up the discussion to you, the audience, for questions. So please do be thinking of them as you listen to the um, author's reading now. Now, it's very important to let you know that for any Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSE Lit Fest. We'd love you to tweet along with your reactions and ideas and questions. Um, we're also running a series of posts on the LSE Africa blog and on our blog Africa in Words to go alongside these readings. We've had a piece already that Leigh wrote for us. So please do check those out later. Um, of course, I have to ask you to put your phones on silent right now so that you don't disrupt the event. Um, and this event is being recorded and will hopefully be made available as a podcast subject to no technical difficulties tonight. So do check that out later as well. The final housekeep housekeeping thing I need to let you know is that Pages of Hackney will be selling books throughout the festival including copies tonight of Jennifer's Chintu and Chibundu's The Spider King's Daughter. These are going to be available outside. Um, I think there's some discussion whether it's cash only or whether you'll be able to pay by card. But either way, if you want to hang around outside after the event, the authors have also agreed to sign their books for you back in here afterwards. So please do make sure you grab a copy. I should say that Chintu especially is really hard to get hold of in the UK. So this is a really amazing opportunity to do it now. Um, Leia's book, I should just say, is just about to be published in April. Is yeah. that right? So we haven't got it tonight, but hopefully you'll be able to hear um, a little extract tonight and buy it in April. So let's get started. Why did we want to talk about African futures tonight? Um, we've all seen Western media reports that Africa is rising and a new middle class is emerging on the continent to transform its political and economic systems. But at the same time, we've all heard more sober stories from countries like Mali, from northern Nigeria and Kenya, which have reinforced earlier gloomy impressions and claims that Africa is not rising for everyone. But still, both optimistic and pessimistic accounts, at least from here in the UK, seem to remain stubbornly dominated by outside voices. What do African writers and thinkers really think about the future of the continent? Here to address these, men these questions and many more are our three writers. So if you don't mind, I think we'll start in this direction. Is that okay? So, Leigh, are you happy to go first? Yeah. <laughs> so, 
Leah Denley is an actor and writer. He's written a number of short stories and flash fiction pieces, including The Assassination. His forthcoming novel, Easy Motion Tourist, will be published by Cassava Republic. He's also appeared on stage in London in plays including Ola Rotimi's Our Husband Has Gone Mad Again. And he featured in an episode of the African sitcom Meet the Adebanjos. Leigh comes from a family of writers, most famous of whom was his grandfather, Oba Adelei Adenle I, a former king of Oshogbo in southwestern Nigeria. Over to you, Leigh. Thank you. All right. Um, to tell you about the book. Hello. Is that working? <laughs> yeah, I think I'm loud enough. <laughs> okay, right. All right, so um, Easy Motion Tories is about, um, people ask me what's the book about. And in all honesty, it's about so many things. It's about women, uh, dogs, violence against women, prostitution, police brutality, and all of that. But mostly it's about a Nigerian woman, Amaka, who runs a charity that looks after prostitutes. Because in Nigeria, uh, prostitution is illegal. And for that reason, nobody looks out for the girls. So... Essentially, they get cheated, shortchanged, abused, uh, uh, harassed, made to do things they did not agree to. And um, and you can imagine all things that happened to them. So Amaka's charity, the Street Samaritans, uh, watches out for them. Uh, The charity gives them health checks, uh, provides them with protection, uh, education, and stuff like that. But that's what Amaka does officially. Unofficially, she keeps a record of the men who use prostitutes in Lagos. Uh, The girls themselves give her the information that goes into her records. Um, When a girl turns up on the streets for the first time, the other girls will say to her, there's this phone number you can call. They don't know who Amaka is. They don't know her. She doesn't know them directly. They'll tell the new girl, there's this number you can call to find out anything you want to know about anybody in Lagos. So before a girl gets into a car with a stranger, she can text the car's registration number to Amaka, and Amaka can check on her database. And this way, she can say things like, you know, um, you can charge him this much, or he usually likes going with two girls, or um, is a bit rough. Or, more importantly, don't go with him. Now, in a country where the belief in the efficacy of black magic exists and flourishes side by side with uh, reverence for and reliance on the Abrahamic religions, prostitutes make the perfect victims for black magic rituals that require human blood. There are men on Amaka's database who girls have gone with before and they've never been heard of again. Amaka's biggest fear is the day a girl will turn up dead because she, Amaka, did not want them not to go with someone. And the book opens on that day. I'm going to read a passage. Uh, In this passage, Amaka has um, just rescued uh, a British journalist from the Nigerian police and then the process of getting to know each other, and she's telling him, Guy, about um, herself. And in this passage, she's talking about her nanny, a former nanny. I was brought up by house girls, maids. When I was young, my parents were away a lot. 
My father was a diplomat. My mother didn't want me to keep changing schools, so I stayed in Nigeria, but she always went with him wherever he was posted. So the nannies raised me. I hated her for leaving me alone like that, but now I understand she didn't trust her husband to be alone. I had a particular nanny, my favorite, Auntie Baby. She was Ghanaian. In those days, a lot of Togolese and Ghanaian people were in Nigeria, economic refugees. They thought they would find a better life in Nigeria, but most of them, especially the girls, ended up becoming servants, housemaids. They were the lucky ones. The rest became prostitutes to survive. These were people who came from middle-class families whose parents were university professors and doctors. But when they came here, we would only trust them to clean up to clean our homes, cook our food, clean up after our children. Auntie Bibi was a special person. She loved me. She talked a lot. She told me about her life in Ghana, about the boyfriend she'd left back home, about her journey to Nigeria, about the 60-year-old gate man down the road from ours who wanted to marry her. She was 21. She'd been studying to be a nurse back in Ghana, but in our house, she was a nanny, and even then, only by name. In truth, she was my servant, my own personal slave at my beck and call. She was also my friend. She was a perfect big sister I didn't have. I'm an only child. We had other servants in the house, many. A lot of them were boys. I developed early. The houseboys were the first to start touching me, then the drivers, then the gatemen. I was only 10, and it was open season on me. They would take me into a room and make me do things to them. One day, I don't know how, Auntie Baby found out about me and one particular boy, Sunday. My father was posted to South Africa then. When they came back, Auntie Baby told Mom what had happened. She was furious. She called for Sunday and me. She asked him what he'd been doing to me. He lied that it was he who had caught Auntie Baby interfering with me and that he had threatened to report her. Mom asked me if this was true. I said it was. I don't know why, but I lied. I said Sunday was telling the truth. I remember the look on Auntie Baby's face that day. She kept calling my name, Amaka, Amaka. Mom slapped her, beat her. It was horrible. That evening, my parents sent her away. She didn't have a place to go, but they had the soldiers march her out. They sacked everyone in the house. They got me a new nanny, a Nigerian girl, Iyabo. Several years later, when I was in university, I saw Auntie Baby again. It was at the hairdresser's. She was the one who recognized me. She came to me and lifted the dryer off my head. She shouted, Amaka, and embraced me. This woman who I had betrayed embraced me. I thought she walked there, but she had only come to do her hair. She took me to her house. She had a nice flat. She told me all that had happened to her since she left our house. She lived rough on the streets for some time, doing hard jobs. Then in 83... When immigrants were being expelled from Nigeria, she married the old gate man so she could stay. That's all.
Thank you very much. Thank you. Our next reader tonight is going to be Jennifer McCumbie, who's reading from her novel Chintu. So Jennifer's first novel, Chintu, won the Kwani Manuscript Prize in 2013. Um, she's a lecturer in creative writing at the University of Lancaster, where she also completed a PhD in creative writing. She was awarded the Commonwealth Short Story Prize in 2014 for her short story, Let's Tell This Story Properly. And Jennifer was born and grew up in Kampala, Uganda. Um, I'm going to introduce uh, Chintu for Jennifer because her head's currently away with her, the novel she's writing at the moment, so <laughs> it's difficult for her to go back. So, set in the historical events of 1750 Buganda Kingdom and later modern Uganda, Chintu is the epic tale of Chintu, a chief in Buganda Kingdom, who inadvertently kills his adoptive son while on a journey to the capital. When he fails to inform the biological father, he and his descendants are cursed to suffer. In 2004, his descendants, all of whom seem to suffer from mental illnesses, are brought together to break the curse. Through a family story, Chintu presents the political and economic turmoil of Uganda. So the novel's made up of six sections. The first one takes us back to 1750, Buganda Kingdom, and follows the misfortunes of Chintu, the patriarch. Four sections come back to present-day Uganda to look at four of his descendants and see how the curse manifests in their lives. The final book collects all the descendants together as they try to undo the curse. So Chintu presents the political and economic turmoil in Uganda since independence as the inevitable, inevitable progression of the European colonial experiment that must be endured. The experiment is the wayward formation of new nations and then draping European politics over them, despite cultural, social and, and economic disparity. Here, the horror is firstly that no one, African or European, foresaw the present turmoil as part of the slow and painful evolutional process to Africa's modernisation. And secondly, that no one realised that, because of this disparity, Western modernisation could never be replicated in Africa. Over to Jennifer. Thank you. Um, the part I'm going to read uh, comes from the uh, fifth part of the novel. Now, um, the character in this part is called Missy. And Missy has lived in Britain... ..has lived in Britain for a long time, especially during Idi Amin's time. And while he was here, he studied like they do when they're here, and he got a PhD. He returns home. The PhD was in literature... He returns home and he teaches at Makere University for a while, but he's disgusted by the lack of interest of students who just prefer to recycle essays uh, and, and steal exams. So he settles back into the rural village. When the village hears that he's coming home, the, what they hear is Dr. Chintu is coming back to the village, and they're like, oh, my God, we're getting our own doctor eventually. Only to find out that he's the doctor of books. <laughs> <laughs> what nonsense. Um, so when he finds out that he is really irrelevant to his community, Chint tries to bring you know, some of the world views to the peasants that he lives with. He thinks that they should be interested in what is going on in the world. So he decides to write a a column for the newspaper in Luganda, and he thinks that when they read this, then they, he can 
manufacture some discussion so you know so he can be relevant to his society so what i'm going to read is partly an article that he writes and also partly when he takes it to the villagers to read through how they, they react to it. Okay. After supper, he lay on his bed waiting for sleep. An idea of how to illustrate colonization had been brewing in his mind since visiting Kalebu. He was alarmed at the sheer lack of anger over European colonization among the residents. He sat up and scribbled the title in English, Afrikanstein. Then he translated it into Luganda, Ixode. Oh, this is the article. Buganda, unlike the rest of Africa, was sweet talk to, to the operating table with praises and promises. Protectorate was the plastic surgery to set the sluggish African body on a faster road to maturity. But once under chloroform, the surgeon was at liberty and he did as he pleased. First, he severed the hands, then cut off the legs, and he put the black limbs into a bin bag and disposed of them. Then he got European limbs and set upon grafting them on the black torso. When the African woke up, the European had moved into his house. Though the African was too weak to get up, he still said to the European, I don't like what you're doing, my friend. Please get out of my house. But the European replied, I'm only trying to help, brother. You're still too weak and drowsy to look after your house. I'll take charge in the meantime. When you're fully recovered, I promise you will work and run twice as fast as I do. But Africa has the, but, but the African body has rejected the European body parts. Africa says that they are incompatible. The surgeons say that Africa discharged itself too soon from hospital. That is why it's hemorrhaging. It needs a lot more continual blood and water pumped intravenously. Africa says the blood and water are too expensive. The surgeon says, no sense. We did the same to India. See how fast it's running. When Africa looked in the mirror, it saw that it was hideous. Africa looked in other eyes to see how they saw it. There was revulsion. That gave Africa permission to self-harm and self-hate. Sometimes when the world is not looking, the surgeons poke Africa in the wounds. When it falls down, the surgeons say, you see, we told you they were not ready. Now, we cannot go back to the operating table and ask for African limbs. Africa must learn to walk on European legs and work with European hands. As time goes by, children will be born with evolved bodies, and in time, Africa will evolve according to its sodas nature and come to its best form but it will be neither African nor European. Then the pain will settle down. Missy was relieved by the reception of his exodic analogy by the fellow villagers. It was the first time he discussed an article with them before sending it off to the newspaper. Probably the fact that he had asked for their help with the Luganda vocabulary piqued their interest. Either way, Miss was thankful for their enthusiasm. For the first time, the residents asked pertinent questions such as, so, if because of this reaping and grafting and stitching, 
societies like ours are of exodic nature. Should we just sit back and wait until evolution smoothens things out? No, not sit back, but we must manage the pain. However, whatever we will do or can do will be within the scope of Exode. It's important for us to realize that we are operating under different natures so that we don't compare ourselves unfavorably to others or hold grand expectations. So how do we manage the pain? Swallow the painkillers as prescribed by the surgeons, keep using our own herbs, and do all those things that will not exacerbate the wounds. But all that is just to soothe. Evolution is perfect at perfecting even mistakes. In which world are we evolving to? Sorry. In which world are we going to evolve in? Caleb was skeptical. Skeptical. I'm not pouring water on your fire, Missy, but the whole thing sounds too neat for me. It's hope, though, isn't it? In a perfect world, maybe, Caleb said, where all other continents are asleep and would not interfere. Missy, I say this with a wrong mind, Sochito started, but if Europeans outwitted us, no matter how despicable their tactics were, isn't it time we came up with a strategy for our own survival rather than sitting here and crying, look what they did to us? Thank you. And then our third author to read tonight is Chibundu Onuzo. Uh, Chibundu was born in Nigeria in 1991, and she's the youngest of four children. She's currently studying history at King's College London. Her first novel, The Spider King's Daughter, won a Betty Trask Award, was shortlisted for the Dylan Thomas Prize and the Commonwealth Book Prize, and longlisted for the Desmet Elian Prize and the Eti Salat Prize for Literature. When not writing, Chibundu can be found playing the piano or singing. Over to you. <laughs> Hello. I don't know why I put my year of birth in my bio <laughs> now. Every time you know, I hear it, I'm like, I should probably take that out. Um, <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I wrote a novel called The Spider King's Daughter, um, and it was published in 2012. And it's basically about a rich girl called Abike Johnson, and she meets a street hawker. Does everybody know what a hawker is? Okay, some people, when I say hawker, they hear hooker, and then suddenly the story has changed. Um, so, yeah, it's not a hooker. That's Leia's story. <laughs> um, um, so yeah, for those who don't know, hawkers sell things on the side of the road. They hawk, basically. So she meets a street hawker in Lagos, and he's good-looking, and he speaks well, and she doesn't expect these two things from a hawker. So she decides to stop again, and then they strike up a friendship, and the story continues. Um, before I read a little bit from it, what is... Um, what I found interesting about the reviews is that a lot of reviewers focused on, you know, the inequality on the in the book, and you know, they focus on the fact that Abike is so rich, and you know, you know, the hawker is so poor, and you know, and it's funny what the chair of this panel said, and she said, "Is um, Africa rising for everybody?" Um, and it's true, Africa is not rising for everybody, but nowhere is rising for everybody. You know, I mean, the LSCs, I know this is an economic environment, so you know that 
something called the Gini coefficient. Let me show off my knowledge. Um, so yeah, or is it Gini? One of them is rising everywhere in the world. So inequality everywhere is rising. You know, occupy Wall Street, occupy everywhere. We're occupying everything. So yeah, let's occupy LSE tomorrow. Um, okay, that's not why they invited me. <laughs> Um, so the novel is told in two first-person narratives, um, and it's told from Abigail's perspective, and it's told from the hawker's perspective. I don't know, I haven't actually read from this in a while, so I'm still kind of, mm-hmm, where should I read to you from? I'll read to you from a little bit of Abigail, and I'll read to you from a little bit of the hawker. So this is the first time you meet Abigail. Let me tell you a story about a game called Frustration. A dog used to follow me around when I was 10. One day, my father had his driver run this dog over in plain view of the house. I watched from my window, the black car purring on the grit, the driver's hands shaking as he prepared himself for a second hit, and my father sitting in the back seat, watching. The car reversed. Again, his tires rolled over my dog, and then he sent for me. I was calm until I reached him his head bowed in the black funeral suit that he wore throughout my childhood, his arms folded. I'm so sorry, he said. I know how much that dog meant to you. I don't know how this idiot didn't see it. I knew he was lying. He knew I knew. And in that moment, I felt an anger fill me so strong, it would surely have killed one of us if I let it loose. Somehow, it was clear to me that this would be the wrong thing to do. I strolled over to the dog and prodded it with my foot. Blood had streaked its fur, and it was whining in pain. My father studied my face, searching for the smallest hairline of a crack. I just stood there looking at the animal. Finally, I said, Daddy, please, can we run over my dog again? Both he and the driver were visibly shocked. My father nodded. The driver shook his head, his knuckle bones popping out of his dark skin. Do as she says, he said. Aim for the head, I said, leaning against the car and taking a perverse pleasure in the driver's shrinking away. I turned and walked towards the house in that stroll that children have on the first day of their summer holidays. I called over my shoulder, almost as an afterthought. Daddy, please make sure he hits the head this time. Abigail 1, Mr. Johnson 0. No animals were harmed in the making of this. Okay, and then I'm going to read to you from a little section with the hawker, and then I'll stop. Um, So, yeah, this is the hawker on the road. The Datsun stopped abruptly, narrowly missing my legs. Clear from there, the driver said, banging on his horn. Are you mad, I said. You know the sea road. My friend, come out or I go jam you. You the crates? Oh, yeah, jam me. Come out. I said jam me today. The man swerved into the next lane. Idiot, he said. Your mama. I spread the five fingers of my right hand and spat. Fire for fire. That is the only way to survive on the road. When I first started, I used to mind my manners. Yes, please. No, thank you, like my mother taught me. But those manners were for a boy who was meant to go to university and work in a law firm. She never told me what to do if a customer sprinted away with my money. She never gave me advice on how to handle the touts that came here sometimes, asking for tax. I had dealt with one that morning, a slim, feral-looking man. Trading levy, he had said. I don't pay your people already. Now lie. I tell you I don't pay, no harass me. 
They know me in this area. Who are you? You don't know me, I asked. He was clearly a newcomer, unattached to the main body of touts, or he would have called my bluff. Instead, he spat and moved on to the next hawker. Trading levy, he said. Mm-hmm. The end. Thank you very much to all three of you for your wonderful readings. And um, what we're going to do now then is I'm going to ask you all a few questions. Perhaps you can all respond together and then we'll open it up to the audience in about 20 minutes time for your questions as well. Um, so we're here tonight to think about futures, plural, different futures that you might be imagining for Africa or maybe for elsewhere as well, for the diaspora beyond. Um, so I wanted to begin by asking you what role, if any, do you think the future plays in your books? Um, Perhaps I could begin with Jennifer, because your book is most obviously involves the past and the present. But I wondered, is the future sort of there in your book as well? We heard perhaps characters imagining a different kind of future. Was that something you thought about while you were writing? Yeah, when, when I was writing that part of the novel, and it's, it, it, it was that imagined future that we have, that, you know, Africa cannot be the Africa that you, the world imagines in its pure form, whether there's ever anything pure. But it will be an Africa that has um, cannibalized aspects from all over the world, and, and then it can find its own you know, unique uh, character. But um, it's, uh, according to my character here, it's it's going to take a long time. And what is happening to Africa now is a direct uh, consequence of the past. But uh, the, the problem is that the world is so impatient. And, uh, the, you know, if you look at the West, it took it 2,000 years to get where it, it, it did, and then it decided, oh, my God, we are quite comfortable here and very happy with ourselves, so why don't we make everybody like us? So they came to Africa and helped us to be like them. But they imagined somehow in 10, 20 years we will achieve what they did in 2,000 years, and they imagined that we will be exactly the way they are. So my imagined futures, uh, it, it's nothing perfect, Okay, it's it, but it is something good that will have risen organically out of Africa. Yeah, thank you. And um, Chibundu and Lei, both of your books, I think, are set in contemporary Lagos or near contemporary Lagos. So, was the future something you were thinking about writing them? Because I think in both of your books, from looking at contemporary Lagos, we kind of get an idea that things could be different. You both sort of point out, as you said, people often pick up on inequality in your books. And in your book, certainly, we're seeing kind of sexual violence and violence in general. I wondered if writing these books very much about the present, in that way, you're also thinking about the future as well, or maybe not. Uh, who wants to start, Chibundu? Okay. Um, it's funny, actually. Before I start, I wanted to respond to something... Um, Jennifer said, because talking about empires, I was reading this really interesting African historian called, he's not African, but he's a a historian of African history, called Fred Cooper. And he was saying that for most of recorded history, the world has organized itself in empires. You know, so you had African empires as well, you know, the Mali Empire, so on and so forth. So that actually this kind of democratic nation-state kind of thing is actually 
is just like a product of the of fairly recent times mm-hmm. that empires are it's natural for people to want to go and grab other people's land or subdue other people. So um yeah, I'm not saying British people shouldn't feel bad about <laughs> British Empire, but it's just um an interesting concept. Anyways, um back to me, the future. Yeah, I wrote this book a very long time ago. Um I don't know what I was thinking when I wrote this book. I was in Winchester. I was very nostalgic for uh, Nigeria. Um, and I was very, um, yeah, nostalgic. I was in a school where there weren't any other black people, let alone any other Africans. And, you know, people would ask me, oh, um, you know, what do you have in Nigeria? You know, do you have lions? So, no, we don't have, uh, not, I mean, not in my part of Nigeria, not in Lagos. Do you have giraffes? No, we don't have, you know. And they'll be like, what do you have? And I'm thinking, so because we don't have lions and giraffes, you know, we don't have anything, you know. And there was a very um, big uh, kind of fight back, you know, that where I come from is an interesting place. It's what writing about. It might not be what you expect. Um, so I definitely was not thinking of the future. I was just thinking of contemporary Lagos, as you've pointed out. But um, as to the future now, my thoughts on it, you know, it's kind of like the hubris of, you know, young people, of we millennials. But, you know, I just think I am the future. But then (laughs) (laughs) at the same time, I think every generation thinks that, you know, you have to be careful you don't miss the moment and, you know, you don't get um, swept up in all this rhetoric of, you know, 70% of Africa's population is under 35, nah, 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 nah. And, you know, so you're thinking, yes, but it's, um, it's what you do with that. It's what you do with these immense opportunities that are opening up. Because we've seen these opportunities. I'm doing... um, a PhD in history, and I'm doing it on kind of the nationalist kind of era. And you see all these young men, Kwame Nkrumah, Jomo Kenyatta, you see all these incredibly kind of ambitious and idealistic young men. And, you know, they just went back, and I don't know, I have that image in you of the, the body parts sewn together. It's like, really, yeah, they just did nonsense. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, you have to, um, you know, be careful. But, yes, I am the future, basically. <laughs> And uh, so what do you think the millennials do offer the future then? Is there something specific you see to your, your our generation? We offer youth, beauty. <laughs> yeah. And we go on protests. I think my parents' generation, you know, they didn't go out um, in the sense that, I mean, when June 12 happened, you know, the middle classes generally that I know of, they didn't go out. The teachers and the doctors, they didn't go on the streets. From my experience, from my remembrance of it, Leia is raising his eyebrows. But um, when um, the fuel subsidy in 2012, you know, you saw young people on the street and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't usually people that you associate with politics. In Nigeria, we associate the people that go out and campaign. I mean, you think, oh, these ones are touts. These ones are people they paid to do it. But, you know, these were idealistic young people who had, you know, it was across all classes of society. You know, people went out and protested. So, yeah, I think... Hopefully, we'll see. <laughs> Thank you. And Leo, did you want to come in here? Um, I never think of the future, so when I was writing the book, I wasn't thinking of the future. Uh, but what, what, you, what you guys said, you know, futures of Africa and where we are now and where we're going, and you said, you know, uh, you said we've, it's going to take us time to get to where the Western world is. Mm. And you said that there's this first people, Thomas Sankara, Nkrumah, and Co., mm. they mess it all up. One thing we keep forgetting, I think, now this has nothing to do with the book or anything, is that 
the colonial rulers did not rule for the benefit of the nations they ruled. So the administrators, the governors, the clerks, all of them, when they handed over to the clerks, the African clerks, who then became the first crop of rulers, what those Africans inherited from them, the, the, the experience, the, uh, the example they inherited was you run government for your sake to take the wealth of the people out of Africa. So it's not so much... Uh, we need time to learn, blah, blah, blah. It's more, of, it's more of our development was curtailed. It's more of, I think, I personally believe that uh, just like, you know, you, you can't judge intelligence by English, your ability to speak English. Just because our world, our reality, our institutes were not fashioned on what we call the Western Walls, whatever, doesn't mean we were not educated, doesn't mean we were not advanced, doesn't mean we did not have culture. The old Oyo Empire is so old, it's a lot older than 2,000 years. The history goes back further than that. The Benin Empire, I mean, you go to the, uh, to the National to the Museum, and you see the Benin bronze. You know, this is on like the caricature, you know, the African arts where it's bogus ships and everything, which has become sort of like the cliched. Is African art. These are things that are comparable to the to the marbles of Michelangelo, you know, and they were cast in bronze. And this was thousands of years ago. But they were taken, you know, they were taken en masse. They were just carted away. So what actually happened to Africa was that um, another people who were uh, willing, maybe for economic reasons, to Enslave and other people had monopoly of or knowledge of gunpowder and ships. I mean, how do you fight that if your wars have been fought with bows and arrows, you know, and then suddenly they come with gunboats and they take you away? And I don't care who it happens to, if for 400 years, if for 400 years continuously, all the able bodied men, women, and children in America were taken off to Africa to work for free and all the uh, natural resources in America, if, if there's any, are taken off to Africa. Africa would be fantastic. So, uh, in the sense of what we think fantastic is, but if we leave that aside, we have history, we have culture, we had the first universities ever recorded were in Africa. You know, uh, we have uh, religion. The only difference between African religions and the religions of, I mean, the only thing that makes uh, uh, praying to an African God incantation and praying to Jesus prayer is because we've been told one is right and one is wrong. But personally, I don't. It's just another myth. So my myth that my people believe in is just as good as the Jesus myth. I'm not saying Jesus is not real, but you know, it's just as good as it. And um, I don't think uh, we need time to develop. In fact, I don't think Africa is rising. I think Africa is rising again. And way back then, we were a proud people. We had everything, and then we were interrupted forcefully. And we're going to get back there, whereas I agree with you, but we're going to get back there. And the people not in those days, they were more politically aware, I think, 
in the terms of people like Thomas Sankara. These people had ideology. They believed. And June 12, my father, old man, was on the, was on the streets. My father was on the streets. I remember June 12. I'm that old. My mother was in the house. <laughs> so, I, did, I mean, um, just to... Do you want to say, to say something? Okay, well, just, just to jump in and, and rewind. I mean, I understand everything you're saying, but I think also what you're saying takes away agency. So, um, yes, the British ruled Nigerian, con- African colonies in a way that showed them how to steal and showed them how to appropriate. But at the end of the day, you know, for example, if I met, you know, James Ibori, for example, and I asked him, you know, why are you stealing? And he tells me it's because the British people 50s years ago, they taught <laughs> us how to steal. It's like, don't tell me that rubbish. You are stealing because you are greedy so and so. <laughs> so my point is that there's no doubt that, you know, these British people, they did this, they did that, but we have agency, and I feel like to to I don't um I feel like we we cannot give other people the responsibility for our mm, actions. I, I, I agree with you. I, I totally worry about that narrative that you know we learned everything. You know, Africans have learned recently everything bad. We've learned to appropriate to Europe. They brought homosexuality here. We were never homosexual. That's not the, that's not the narrative. No, no, it's not just, true. Just, just, just an example. But um, it, it is a dangerous narrative, I think. I think it's time we took responsibility for our failures. Because remember, at least in my country, before Europe arrived, my people, my ethnic group, was colonizing other Africans big time and treating them really badly. So violence didn't arrive with Europe only. It was in Africa. It's only that when Africans colonized Africans, there was no this hierarchy of races where one race was superior and the other was inferior. That's the difference. So if if Africans had the power to colonize or the intention to colonize everyone else, they would have. They would have done it. It's not that, you know, there's this difference in humanity. However, it has happened. And it has happened to a lot of people, okay? We need to arise from that. And this is what I, why I get impatient with post-colonial studies. We, we are so stuck in that. Rather than looking at, okay, so we were colonized, they've gone. What have we done for the last 50 years? I was born after colonization. Okay. There should have been a movement. Okay, maybe my character might see that the, the fighting, the coups after coups, are uh, a way we are trying to assimilate this new culture that we were given. But my view is we need to, to step away from that rhetoric. Now, about this Africa rising, this is nothing to do with Africa. Africa has been moving on. I mean, to us in Africa, we've been going somewhere for a long time. You have no idea. Now, now people arrive and say, oh, Africa is rising. Oh, my God, did you notice? One African writer won an award, a 
major British award. So Africa is rising. <laughs> no, actually, if you're going to measure Africa rising on novels coming out of Africa, then you're in trouble because you're looking at the novels you are publishing. You're not aware of the novels that are being produced in Africa. Oh, by the way, you're not aware of the plays that are coming out all the time being produced within our cinemas in our languages. So basically, your idea of Africa rising is just something you want to say to yourself. Okay? We are tired of saying to the world, Africa is backward. Let's say Africa is rising now. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's, getting, it's getting hot up here. Oh, fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> so I think all three of you then are saying in different ways, we need to understand history. We need a sense of history in the past, whether, you know, in, in quite different ways you've pointed to that. And I guess I have to take it back to the book there. But Jennifer, could you start by telling us about a bit about why there's so much history included in your book? Is it for that reason? Is it for another reason? And actually, a question our student book groups wanted to ask is, how much of that was historical research and how much was sort of accurate from that research and how much did you, you reinterpret? Um, actually, it is the story that took me back to the history. It wasn't the history that came. Because history can be... Tyrannical. If you take history first to write your story, it will take you in all sorts of directions. Because every time you find out something people don't know, you're like, oh my God, this must be in my novel. Oh, I must include that. And the story loses its you know, way. However, it was the story that I wrote. And I, I, it, this is a story about a curse, a curse that comes from the seven, uh, from 1700s. So I looked at the history of the kings in <coughs> of Buganda, and I looked at the kings that ruled around 1740, and their stories themselves were interesting to set my story in. So I read about those historical factors. So the kings that are in the book lived, uh, the princesses also lived, but what, how my character sees them, that is imagined. Now, it was very important to me. History was very important. And if you read my novel, I have cut the whole of colonization out. So I've written Buganda before Europe arise. And then I jump colonization and I go to 2004. Now, some of the characters were born in the 1940s. I go back there to look at them but I've cut Europe out. And the reason was taking you back to post-colonial studies. So I arrived in Britain, 2001, doing a master's degree, and I, I was told you cannot do this course unless you link it in post-colonial studies. And when I looked at post-colonial studies... Uh, I'm sure those who are doing post-colonial studies are going to get angry with me, but bear with me. Post-colonial studies are about Europe in Africa. It is Europe looking, after, looking at itself. And so when I write my novel and put Europe there, I'm, I'm once again peripherizing myself and my culture and my society, and bringing the spotlight on Europe again. It might be critical, but Europe does not mind being 
criticized. You're focusing on Europe again. Okay? This is why the world loves things fall apart. Because, oh my God, Achebe records the moment when the Africa fell apart at the arrival of Europe. It is Europe. Okay? So I once I realized that my study is going to focus on I think Britain again. <laughs> I removed it. <laughs> Preach, Jen. <laughs> Um, Lee, could I ask you here? You're, you have a British journalist as one of, as your, one of your main characters. Is yes. that right? What, what prompted you to then kind of in a way do the opposite of what Jennifer's doing and include this British character very prominently? Was that a way for you to kind of look at that relationship between Britain and Nigeria or was uh, there something else going on? It was just I wanted to be able to... It was given a narrative voice because it, Lagos is beautiful. Lagos is a fantastic place and... Um, it would have been strange for a Lagosian to notice the shimmering colors of Lagos, to notice the accents around him, or to be excited about a bus conductor who's almost falling out of the bus to get people into the bus. Uh, but looked, seen through the eyes of a foreigner, it afforded me the opportunity to talk about these beautiful things about Lagos. And that's the only reason it's there. So that I could do that and not, so it wouldn't be forced if I started talking about, or if the characters started talking about being excited at um, seeing, never having seen so many expensive cars mm-hmm. packed in the same place at the same time, which you see a lot in Nigeria, you see a lot in Lagos, mm-hmm. or being excited at seeing a rain of money at a party where there's just dollars just falling and piling up on the ground, oh, yeah. right? <laughs> that. It would have been strange for a Lagosian to see that and describe that and be fascinated because you see it all the time. Okay. Either on telly or you're the one throwing money away. Yeah, so the layer rolls with the with the high high and mighty. Like, I see that. I see that all the oh, time. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. Dollars are always falling everywhere. Absolutely. <laughs> it doesn't happen. Oh my God! <laughs> oh, I, I mean, it's one of our Nigerian culture that we look at and we're like, "What?" <laughs> you, wait, 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 wait! You mean when you throw parties, and the musician is really getting into it, and all the women and men are dancing, you don't throw tons of money. Too <laughs> <laughs> <Just> serious. <laughs> so basically, you should have made your journalist Ugandan. <laughs> <laughs> you really didn't uh, actually um, uh, let me tell you uh, Nigerians arrive in Uganda and they say what is wrong with you has somebody died yeah. <laughs> yeah. no um, no if you threw money on a word at people I don't know <laughs> have you witnessed it before I'll send you a YouTube video. <laughs> no, I've read novels in Nigeria where it's, it's done. Oh, yeah. And it's, I saw it as very sexual. It's illegal. You're not sexual. supposed to do it anymore. It depends How on is the, it sexual? On the denomination. It's a, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it's very masculine. 
Sorry. Women do it as well. Women doesn't have any This novel I was reading was a man was just throwing this money at women. And I just couldn't see it as well. No, it's both ways. I suppose in that context, it can be an expression of interest. But, you know, yeah, so sure the well. musician expects you to spray them oh, as well. Right. So sometimes, it's kind of like tipping sometimes. So like if King Sonia Day is playing at a wedding, you know, you go up and spray him just to be like, you know, you're the boss. <laughs> this is actually a great moment for me to ask my next question. <laughs> oh, I wanted to say something yes, else please, about having... Um, a, I'm assuming your journalist is white. Yeah. Apparently, it's more likely to be made into a movie then. So, um, good, 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 good. I wasn't. I wasn't thinking about that when I wrote the are book. Are you sure? Are you but, sure? But if there are any directors here tonight. <laughs> um. So the last question I wanted to ask before we open it up to the floor is a question um, our reading groups mentioned a lot, which is the importance of women in all three of your novels. And I wondered, maybe we can think about whether your novels in some way tell us that the future, or about the future for women in Nigeria or Uganda. So, for instance, Leigh, you have a very, I think your narrative, well, you talk a lot about how women can help other women, but also how women can be the victims of sexual violence. And I wondered what you think the role of women is in that novel and why, why you're writing about women in that way. Well, um... I think you'll agree with me. Most of the Nigerian women I know are very strong women. Mm -hmm. Um, So basically I was writing about people I know. Mm -hmm. Uh, The main character is several people I know together. The victims of the horrible things are people, they represent people I know. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't think there's anything, I mean, Amaka hopes for a better future for, uh, for the girls. Uh, but I wasn't thinking about that when I wrote the book. I wasn't thinking, you know, this is the future I want for women. Uh, who am I to think of the future I want for women? Mm-hmm. It was just being truthful, telling a story. Mm-hmm. And the women I know are very strong, so the book is full of strong women. And that's all it is. Yeah, thank you. And um, Jennifer, did you have a... Um, the way I portrayed women, um, this took me by surprise when I, the book was published. I wrote Chintu from a very male point of view, and I knew what I was doing. I, I am feminist, but I wrote this novel from a very masculine point of view. But when it was published in, in, in Kenya, the first review that came out, a writer was angry. She has killed all the men in the novel and she has put guns in the hands of women. And I, I didn't see it like that at all. But uh, the women in, in the novel, especially in the 1700s, you have a king's mother and you have a princess. The king's mother is... Um, you know, in, in Buganda, you had a king, but you had his mother as well. And um, sometimes these two rivaled for power. So sometimes when they say women, African women were repressed, you have to think about it again. Mm-hmm. So, um, um, so when your son was a king, 
you had a lot of power. And so what these women in my tribe used to do, she would watch the throne, realize that her son is getting weaker, and tell her younger son, you know what, we are losing out. Do something. And this brother would kill the other brother, become king. That one starts to get a little bit lazy, goes to the younger son. You know what? We are losing that. But really, it's her having three reigns on power. You know? And um, other, the other queen, the other lady we have, in, and these are true stories, by the way. So the other princess we have, she, her brother kills another brother inadvertently, and the, the brother is killed by the king, and she disappears with the young brothers. And then she thinks, why should I be in exile? So she returns, kills the king herself, and then <laughs> reinstates, because she could not be queen, she puts one of the brothers in power. So there was, Ugandans were surprised of this history because they were not aware of it at, at all. But uh, when I was writing this, I wasn't so much worried about what is the, the position of, of the women in future. Because at the moment, when this regime came into power, it used women. Because we had just come out of war, men, more men had died during war, and there were more women. So we were 52%, there were 48%, and this president uh, relied so much on women in terms of voting. So he gave uh, a, a lot of women rights where, you know, realized, and if you look at our uh, power structure now, they're women, and actually they're as corrupt as the men. So um, I, I wasn't worried at all about the position. I'm not worried about the position of, of women at all. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And yeah, you I agree. Equal corruption rights for all. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I agree with you, Jennifer. Women were the past in Nigeria. Women are the present in Nigeria. And women are the future. I mean, I think it's really interesting, um, you know, when I think a lot of African feminists, they kind of, you know, raise their eyebrows when, you know, people want to, people from the abroad want to teach them the women's rights movement. And you think, uh, when women in England were still struggling for the vote, uh, you know, women in Africa <laughs> were deposing kings. So, like, you know, if you look at the market women, you look at the Iyalojas in Lagos, women have always been very powerful. Women have gone to war. So, like, I think, um, yeah, um, the future is millennial and the future is <laughs> Sounds good to me. <laughs> right, it's time for questions from the floor. So if you could put your hand up, we've got a roving mic. Um, I think we'll take a few questions at once. And then um, also if you could tell me your name and your affiliation if you have one when you ask your questions. So we had a question over there to start us off. Hi. Hi, Jennifer. Hi. My name is Sylvie Namwase. I'm from Uganda, but I'm a student at the University of East London. Um, so, Jennifer, uh, my question is for Jennifer. In light of recent sad events in Uganda that have confirmed that we have a dictatorship, um, <laughs> what do you think is the role of kingdoms 
kingdoms okay. moving forward for Uganda. Okay. Thanks. Do we have any further questions before? We'll just take three together if we have them. So, Laura. I'm just wondering in terms of uh, in Nigeria and Uganda, what do you think has been the most influential book in terms of its impact on the Nigerian or Ugandan public? You know, not in terms of it having an impact in Britain or somewhere else, but a, a, a book or a, perhaps a play that has had a, a powerful impact. Um, do we have one more question for now? Otherwise, we'll start with those two. Okay, let's start with those. So, Jennifer, do you want to start us off? And then. Um, the role of the kingdoms, uh, you never ever want people from your country in the audience when you're going to talk. <laughs> <laughs> That's a tough one. Um, at the moment, for those who don't know about Uganda, um, for a long time we had kingdoms. Uh, there were a lot of kingdoms that made up uh, what the British then decided was Uganda. However, um, when the British were handing over power, one kingdom for a long time had been favored. The British used to do this. They would go to a place and favor one ethnic group. Okay? Now, in my country, they favored my ethnic group, which is Buganda. So, um, actually, Buganda invited the British to come and help them overrun all the other kingdoms so that their kingdom could be bigger. And when the British helped them and they collect, formed a huge country, Buganda, the British took it over. But actually, the Ugand, the, my tribe was trying to take over the country. But uh, what happened then, because there was that history, painful history that the British were not aware of that was going on underneath between the Ugandans. When the British left, they put the king of Buganda as president. Now you can imagine a, a kingdom that has been uh, oppressing other kingdoms around being the, their king made the, the president and they didn't elect him. And it didn't take long when the others united and threw him out. He died in a flat in London. Um, and so all the kingdoms were outlawed. Now, when this president, who is very clever, returned, he realized that to deal with the main group of people, which is my ethnic group, was to give them back their king. So he, we started our kingdom. And the others said, okay, let's have our kingdoms. But what has happened now, because of mismanagement by the Republic, that mm, the kingdom is offering an alternative. They are coming across as, look, we are the better thing. We had better go back to our kingdoms. Look, they are corrupt, but you give us our money, your money, we'll do this and we'll do that and we'll do that. And they are actually doing a good job up to a certain extent. However, the problem with this is that this is one kingdom that is strong, okay? There are three or four other kingdoms, but they're not doing as well. There are parts of Uganda which didn't have kings, and they cannot stand the idea of a king. So those people may not actually, if we go federal, because this is what they want, we go federal and, eight, you know, Uganda is made up of several kingdoms, but there's one president on top. But other people actually don't seem to like it. 
So it's just up to the Baganda and the Vinyankole and the Bachiga and the Batoro, you know, those kingdoms, to, to sell it. But it doesn't seem to be working. Now, for me, I think having the Republic there and the kingdom there is a good thing because they are competing and it's the public that wins because they are vying for, for them. Okay? Um, I don't know. Maybe in future they might say, okay, try and find your own traditional rulers and then let's see how bad they are. And then we can go back to... <laughs> to the president. But at the moment, there's that nostalgia. There's somebody took away our kingdoms. This is who we were. And it was perfect and perfect and perfect, which it wasn't. So maybe, yes, it, you could go back and see how these kingdoms rule. It won't take long to get rid of them. Thank you. Um, who wants to start on the question about um, influential literature in Nigeria or Uganda? Chibundi, looks ready. <laughs> go, for, go for it. I have notes here, man. You caught me out. I was like, I don't live in Nigeria. Why ask me this question? Okay. Um, so on my list, I put three. Half of a Yellow Sun. I think that was a very important book. So Chimamanda's first novel was Purple Hibiscus. And it did well here and kind of people who knew who she was in Nigeria. But it was when she wrote a book about Biafra. And she's kind of brought this elephant on that carpet and brought it... Is it the elephant under the carpet is in the room? Okay, the elephant in the room. Okay, she pointed out at the elephant in the room and swept all the cliches, basically removed things from under the carpet. Um, and yeah, I mean, she brought the you know the Biafra story into like the public discourse, and she does talk about how you know she faced opposition. People were like, "Why do you want to bring this thing up again? We're trying to move forward, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. Um, and yeah, we're still discussing Biafra. I mean, even now in Nigeria, some people are trying to secede. Um, so yeah, half yellow sun, and then I have spoken word and poetry. Um, I've been to a couple um, spoken words nights when I've been in Lagos and in other parts of Nigeria, and it's um, it's I suppose it's a more it's a form of literature that is accessible is more in link with kind of like our culture of storytelling and you know, calling and responding and all of that. Um, and it's, it's been popular. I've been to quite a few spoken words nights in different bars. And it's a place for trendy millennials like myself <laughs> to um, meet. And lastly, actually, I put down El Nathan. Um, he has a blog. Um, and he's also publishing his first novel um, this year. And I think what's very interesting about El Nathan's career is that He's a writer, he lives in Nigeria, and he's created an audience from, for himself from his online presence. So I was talking to his um, publisher, and usually the books that traditionally or normally used to sell better were the books that had been published here, and then won an award, the Chimamandas, etc., etc., and then they get it published in Nigeria, because people have read about it, seen them on CNN, etc., they buy their book. But what El Nathan has done is that he's just upended that. He's created a blog, he's created a massive following for himself, and, you know, his publisher was saying that, you know, like, at one of his, you know, readings, he can sell up to 200 copies of his book, which is, like, a lot for anywhere in the world. So I think writers writing in Nigeria no longer feel, at least El Nathan is showing you, you don't have to travel abroad, you know, for people to want to read your work. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. And Leia, did you want to come in here on Nigeria as well? Then we'll go for um, Uganda. Yeah, books that are important. Amos um, Itola's The Palm Wine Drinkard, which unapologetically written in bad English. The oh. first, yeah, even the title, The Palm Wine Drinkard. 
It's, it's um, not bad English. Not bad English, but <laughs> <laughs> direct fight, translation. Fight. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Unapologetically, it's uh, written with pride. And <laughs> it was the first um, African novel published in English outside of Africa. That was very influential in you know, telling people you can do this. Uh, six years later, things fall apart, which is very important, not just because of the story it told, but because it was a response to the heart of darkness. Uh, and there's all of that there. And then everything he wrote. And uh, I think Fagmore's books were fantastic, especially the ones translated, the one translated by Wally Schoenka. Forest of Transformation, which was a book written in beautiful Yoruba and then was translated beautifully as well. Uh, a little was lost in translation, which you can't help most times. And I think that for me is important because it shows the beauty of being able to write in your own language and write something important in your own language. And, uh, and then it's made accessible to other people by being translated. And then moving further, I think a very important book, the chairman's book, fantastic, uh, for the reasons that he touched on, <coughs> an open sore, you know, and it's quite important, especially after Yellow Sun. Uh, and then Chino's book, There Was a Country, which is not fiction, but came back, and that was his last book, and was sort of his own account of the role he played and what happened during the Biafran War, which is also an important story for literature in Nigeria because through that war, we lost one of the best poets, African poets. Uh, our Nobel Prize winner was sent to prison because of that war because it was rightfully on the side of Biafra. And uh, Chinachibe, you know, uh, who loved what you get from the book is... It was a patriot. He loved Nigeria. You know, Biafra was not because we don't love Nigeria. It was out of we love Nigeria. And we want the best for Nigeria. So I think that's so many very important books. But those ones, particularly, I think, for me, they stand out. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And my book, of course. Chibinzi, <laughs> <laughs> um, did you want to add something before we come yeah, to Yeah, sorry. Jennifer? I just hate to be a pedant. But I don't think... Amos Tutola's book could have been the first African novel published in England outside Africa. Because English, I know of, of Africa. English, I know of another one. It's, by, it's not very well known, but it's called Ethiopia Unbound by a man called Joseph Casey Hayford, who also went on to be a West African politician and founded something called the National Congress of Distance West Africa. So, yeah, there's a historian pedant on the <laughs> panel. <laughs> well, she's an historian. I forgot about that. Yeah, unfair advantage. <laughs> <laughs> Thank um, you. And uh, Jennifer? Um... In Uganda, um, perhaps uh, 30 Years of Bananas, I don't know whether you've heard of, it, it was a play by Alex Mukulu. Um, we are more of a nation that consumes more drama than novel or poetry. And um, this guy, after Uganda made 30 years of independence, and we love matoke. Matoke is a type of bananas. And um, we 
this president who has been in, in power for 30 years now was changing the constitution for the first time so that he could be elected again. When he first arrived, he was saying the right things and everybody was excited. It was like the arrival of the Messiah and he was doing the right things. But after being elected twice, he changed the constitution to be elected again. And that's when this guy, Alex Mukulu, wrote 30 Years of Banana. And it was, unfortunately, it was English, which meant that it didn't reach everybody. But uh, it was the first time that I saw middle-class people moved by Ugandan literary production. Mm. It traveled around the world, but it was showing how we have been consistently and increasingly destroying ourselves. So that was very effective. I thought that Song of Lawino, um, he is perhaps the only poet and writer that every Ugandan from uh, my parents' generation will talk about with pride. Um, uh, the way he satirized the idea of buying into European culture and looking down on your culture, which was a problem for my parents' generation, especially. So he was, and then the way he was just using the English language like he didn't learn it in school, you know, because we were taught in Africa, you in classes, you must speak English perfectly. You must do it right. But he started writing, and he was writing English that was so ungrammatical, but so beautifully that, you know, people like me thought, okay, I can do this as well. I don't have to, to write like uh, Dickens. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Thank so I think those are the two books. Thank you. So we have time for one more round of questions, if we have any. So do get them in now if you're waiting. Was there one over here and then one here? And then we'll go with that one there. And then if we have time, number four there. Hi, sorry. Uh, yeah, I'm Joe from Queen Mary, University of London. I'm just wondering, how much do you see Africa itself as, a, as an identity, as a continent that we can talk about the future? Or is this still a European idea, you know, kind of, of Africa r- the rising? That kind of, I'd be interested to know. Thank you. So that's number one. Now number two was... Okay, sorry. <laughs> Hi, my name is Ben Dele. Um, I have a question to Lele and Dele. Do you plan anytime soon to publish in Yoruba? Well, because um, you were t- talking about Fagunwa? Yes. See, um, unfortunately... Well, hang on, uh, we'll no, save it yeah. for then. Yeah. <laughs> 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 was there another... And then I have a question to Jennifer. Um, I have a question because you worked in academia and you were... and. Um, I never heard about these um, debates on um, post-colonial studies. So I would like to know what would you do yourself uh, if you were still teaching to bring more people in the diaspora to to become academics? Because I noticed that in African studies or in African history, the majority of the professor or researcher, they're not from Africa. Uh, Because you were talking about the, the, the debate about writing African history on the view of Europeans. Oh, How I, about I, I, take, I, can you can you say can you put again please, a question? Mm-hmm. 
Now, basically, what do you do in your, uh, on your side uh, to bring more scholars from the African diaspora to, to teach about African literature or African history or anthropology, etc.? Because I noticed, uh, I started going back into academia three years ago, and I yeah. noticed the majority of the people talking about African history, yeah. they're not from Africa, actually. And I've been to a conference last summer where wow. there were some panels, there were no Africans, to talk about Africa. So it was as if uh, a friend of mine told me, like, as if you were running a conference on India, there were no Indians on the panel, and nobody could speak any of the Indian languages. And perhaps we'll start with those two questions and we'll come back for the last two. So um, should we start with this question about can we talk about Africa as a, as a concept or an identity as something that has a future? Um, does anyone want to start with that one? Yeah, I have something to say, as always. Um, I've been reading a lot about Pan-Africanism and the Pan-African movement and how it developed and how the African diaspora saw itself in relation to you know, the Africans who'd remained at home or hadn't been kidnapped I suppose to remain at home um, and I think one of the things that struck me was that the idea of Africa only comes when you've travelled out of Africa um, so before this, you know, slaves were kidnapped you know, they thought of themselves as Buganda or Yoruba or whatever and then they go to America and they go to Brazil and they go to all these places and home becomes this um, because, you know, you can't remember anymore. You can't remember where your grandmother who was kidnapped was from. So home becomes, you know, Africa, which is, which is a very interesting... And, of course, then the idea of Africa is also, I suppose, you know... I don't know where the word, what the etymology of the word is, actually. I don't know where it comes it from. It means the dark continent. How, in what language? No, it's, it comes from Arabic, actually. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, just this concept that, you know, you have to travel outside Africa before you can think of the continent as a whole. Um, So I don't think, with ideas, it doesn't matter where it started. Because what I put, I I don't know the wording of your question, but you said is, I put down is Africa a European idea. It doesn't matter where the idea of Africa started, as long as Africa is a valid concept for Africans now, which it is. Um, And... Yeah, and then the discussion continues from there because we have to decide what Africa means to us, which is what a lot of the early Pan-Africanists started doing. That's how the movement was born. Like, you know, white people say this is X, Y, Z about what it means to be African, and actually, no, we say, no. And perhaps that's a good moment to move on to the question about Africa and African diaspora academics and scholars um, that you were asked, Jennifer. Did you have any thoughts about that? On academics? Yeah, yeah. Um... Are you talking about academics in Europe? Yes. Uh, how, what universities can do to bring more Africans into the yeah, academy? If someone like me was born uh, in Europe, yeah. well, how, how big of a chance is basically to become the next specialist of XYZ country in Europe, talking about Africa? Because I noticed, that for me, it's, it's not a big issue because I have a career, yeah. but for some people, um, I noticed some of my fellow students last year, they were in their mid-20s, so the probability for them to get a scholarship to have a fully funded uh, PhD is <coughs> compared to someone who would come from a different European country uh, into 
into my university, for instance, they would have more chance actually to get the, the scholarships and to have the funding basically to become an historian. Okay. So, and uh, because I noticed that it's like in, uh, in the firm, you tend to promote people who look like you. Okay. So how can we bridge the, this discourse so that maybe there's uh, more fresh blood to, to have a different view of how to write about African history? Okay. Now, this is my view of what is going on. I've noticed, and I'm going to talk about the English department, because that's where I've been within the academia. I've noticed that most Africans in the English academia have been born and brought up in Africa. They are rarely grown in Europe, even though there are lots of black people here. And I've noticed all these years, and I've been teaching as an assist, uh, uh, a lecturer, uh, as a, an assistant lecturer since 2006. And those, all those years, I've only had two students, two black students in the Eng- English department coming in as students, and they were both Nigerian. And mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, what is happening in this country is frightening. Um, black students don't do English. English is a very, very white subject. My classes are 80% white girls and 20% white boys. And I don't understand why, because you would think that Africans would be the least likely to do English as a subject, you know, or literature as a subject. But actually, the children born in this country are least likely to do, or to end up in academia. And what is going on is it happens right in primary schools. Um, Because I've had my son in this country, I saw what happens. There's something like a bottleneck somewhere where black children just fall off the grid. Somehow they end up in the groups that are going to do the C papers. Okay? And the, the departments in this country that take on the, in the English departments will ask for high grades. The African and black children do not get these grades for some reason. In fact, when I first arrived, there were just none of them. Now, since 2010 in Lancaster, there's been uh, an um, emergence of African, not Caribbean, but African children arriving in the universities. And I think these are the children of the African middle classes that arrived in the 90s and the 80s. And they have pushed their children in to come into universities, but they are not coming to the English department. And, and this is why, then, you won't have African editors or black editors f- to edit African novels. You won't have African publishers. Okay? So it's, it's, it's this, when then you have a post-colonial department, then it's white people who have an interest in African literature, who are going to fill the gap, 
okay? Mm-hmm. It is for me the, the situation is a kind of a bit different. I was I wasn't born in England. I was I'm Nigerian, but I was born in France, and I see the kind of similar situations where actually uh, people from the diaspora tend to be crushed and discouraged, basically, to to go further. Yes, there and, is there is. And that. if you bring another different ideas, basically, you. You basically the people set pitfalls. That's what has happened to me last year. Okay, no, for I me can... it was okay because I have a career, as I said. Okay, so, but um... I I have seen that. I I have, for example, I was in a department where I disagreed with a lecturer on certain African issues. I was talking about the way African write African readers read African literature and the way the West reads African literature. And I said that if you're a writer aiming for those two uh, varying audiences, you're going to have conflicts in your novel because they (coughs) are different. And she was saying that because of post-colonial studies and the fact that Africans were colonized by Britain, therefore they can't read differently. Okay, But these... Yeah, I, I just gave up that PhD. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, this also, remember, there is, there is the question of jobs. So you can imagine me trying to make my way into that department, okay, because I've already disagreed with the lecturers. But that is me who've come from Africa, okay? I'm not born here. And my attitude to English is very different from the children who are born here, who imagines that English is a subject for white middle-class people, okay? So, yes, there is that bottleneck when you arrive that the the department may not get you. I mean, I've been teaching since 2006, but I've not been given a job. They take me in for one or two hours every year, and that's it. You know, but to me, that is not the major problem because I'm not British. If they don't want to give me the job, this is their country. I, my thinking is go back where I came from and see if you don't get a job. You know, that is not politically correct, I understand. <laughs> but, um, you know, the, the, this is my view. But the problem with academia, black people or Africans, getting into academia starts in primary schools. Um, can I just jump in there, actually, because I'm a PhD, you know, research... I very quickly, and then we'll yeah, move I'll on to very ladies, quickly. Sorry. I'm a PhD, you know, research student, so I'm kind of entering into the pipeline. And I think it's, first of all, following the money. So the Nigerian immigrant diaspora, you know, we do very well, you know. I'm, I can only speak from a Nigerian perspective. We have very high rates of university going. We're apparently one of the highest achieving in the world. But, you know, you come home and you tell your dad that you want to study history for PhD when people are bankers, when people are doctors. I think um, there was... I went to King's College. I was the only black person on my... Um, history undergraduate course, but there were many black people in the medical course. There were many black people in engineering. There were many black people in law. Um, And so I just think that it's also a question of remuneration and also a question of chairs. You know, how many chairs for African history are there in this country? So that's why, um, you know, Nigerians have to make money in this country first so they can endow an, a history chair in LSE, endow an African history chair in all these other places. I mean, in King's College, there's one, it's not even an African history chair, it's imperial history. So again, it's... Um, yeah. 
And uh, I think we're just, unfortunately, we're out of time. So I'll just finish with the question to Lei about um, Yoruba. Although I'm sorry to end this discussion because it's extremely important. And of course, I, the authors, I understand, are going to be around to sign their books after. So those of you who didn't manage to ask your questions, maybe if they're willing, they might be able to answer them then. Um, but we'll just finish off with Lei's question about whether you're thinking of translating your book to Yoruba. I'd love it if, it if it could be translated to Yoruba. My grandfather wrote in Yoruba beautifully. Uh, I've, the, I forget the titles or the authors, but there are about two or three books that are very well known for opening on the firing squad. The best one for me was written in Yoruba, and it was translated. And if you speak Yoruba, you know how poetic the language is and how beautiful it is. So I love it. I've been reading, uh, I've, been, I've been fascinated with Shongo, God Shongo, and I've been reading his, uh, I've been searching and researching for everything about Shongo, and especially his praise song. And the reason I was doing that is because I was playing with writing a play, and the more I looked at Shongo, the more I thought, you can only write this play in Yoruba. You know, it would be meaningless if I wrote it any other way. Because Shongo lived when, you know, Yoruba was the language everybody around him spoke, apart from, you know, true trade and conquest and everything. But if I'm writing in English about Lagos, I'm writing in English. There are 250 odd languages speaking in Nigeria. If I write in Yoruba, then I'm cutting out 249 other languages. So if you're writing in Lagos, you'd have to write in the language of Lagos, which is English. But I'd love for the book to be translated. I'd love to read it as a translation. It would be fantastic. I'll tell my publishers. Yes, there's demand. <laughs> thank you so much to all of our authors. We're going to have to leave it there for now. But um, I'd just like to say thank you for a really fascinating discussion that ranged over history, over politics, over academia, over the importance of memory, all, all of these wrapped up in the future. Um, thank you all of you for coming tonight. Um, and I hope some of you have been tweeting as well. I'm looking forward to reading your impressions of the event. Um, there's much more coming up at the Literary Festival this week, so please do stay around. Grab your copies of the books outside and then come and get them signed. And um, if you could just join me in thanking all our authors one more time.